Amen. I want to invite you to have a seat, and as you are having a seat, I want to dismiss a group of us, and that is Hubtown Kids, both Blue Station and uh, Gray Station. <clears throat> Teaching uh, the Blue Station is uh, Mr. Chuck and Mrs. Paula. We've offered them as tribute this morning. They will be teaching the youngsters about the story of the young hero and the horrible giant. This is, of course, the story of David and Goliath. Now, exiting to my right to your left is the gray station. That's ages 6 to 5th grade. And they're not going to be learning anything new today. They're actually going to be reviewing uh, the new city catechism. And as I regularly challenge each of you to do, and some of you let it roll right off your back, right over your head, I would ask you again, lean into one of these children and ask them a question. You could use any of those old uh, dusty uh, loops that you have tucked away in your Bible. There will be all sorts of questions. You can also download the app. Uh, several of the kids are preparing to, um, to be tested on their memory with all of these things that they've been working on uh, this last year. And you're welcome to download the app New City Catechism and, and quiz them yourself. Uh, so that's going to be uh, taking place uh, very soon. And they're going to be learning the re or looking at a review this morning. I want to tell you a quick story about myself as you turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I try not to talk too much about myself unless it's in a way that uh, is uh, deflating. And this is certainly deflating. It's time to graduate. Some of you have done that. Some of you are preparing to do that. When I was getting ready to graduate from high school, uh, they thought it would be a good idea to make a video uh, interviewing all of the graduates. And when it came my turn, I was pretty excited. I thought, here's my chance. Uh, here's the beginning of the rest of my life, my, my time on the camera. Here, here it goes. And the first question they asked was this, what are you most apprehensive about? It's a pretty good question, especially since I didn't even know what apprehensive meant. And so I had to stop the interview, time out, what does apprehensive mean? And then we continued the interview. Now, I won't tell you what I was most afraid of, uh, but once I knew the definition, once I knew what we were actually talking about, I was able to have that conversation. I was able to complete that portion of the interview. We ended our time last week in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, with this statement about faith. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we're those of faith and preserve their souls. Well, you, you say, well, I don't want to be that sort of person that shrinks back. I certainly don't want to be the sort of person that is destroyed. But then you say, but what does it mean to have faith? Again, I remember wrestling with that word faith. What does it really mean to have faith? And how does faith lean in? How does it contribute to preservation of one's soul? Well, that's what the scriptures are working to explain for us today. And so if you were, what would, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. If you're already there, great. Say amen. Not many. So go ahead, the rest of you, uh, Pull that black hardback Bible out in front of you and turn to page 1195. Also, it will be on the screen. Let's look at Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. This is the word of God. It says, Now faith 
is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that that which is, uh, which is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Again, let's just pause. We're utterly dependent on the spirit of God. And together, let's go to him now and let's ask him to help us understand this. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this text. We want to be what the writer of Hebrews thought his original audience was, not those who shrank back, but those who have faith. Father, how can we know what it is to have faith? How can we know if we have faith? We can't even define it. Would you help us to understand it more clearly this morning? We ask this boldly, Jesus, again, in your name, amen. It's always helpful for us to understand the context, isn't it? And so we see verse 39, the very end of chapter 10. He says, we, the writer says, the preacher speaking to his audience, he says, we are not those who shrink back. We're not going to leave the faith. We're not going to abandon the church. We're not going to return to the temple. Those are the ones who will be destroyed. But let their faith go. We are those who have faith. We are those who keep the faith to the preserving of our souls. I hope that's us today. Faith is the opposite of apostasy. It's the exact opposite of apostasy. The, the preacher here has worked diligently to explain to us what it is that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. He's taken chapters for us sermons and months upon months to turn the diamond of the work of Jesus Christ to see that he is the high priest who has made a sacrifice on our behalf. He has opened a new door, pathway right into the very presence of God. What does it mean to have faith in that? Well, the author anticipates that sort of question. He anticipates that misunderstanding or that wonder, and so he begins chapter 11 by addressing it. Now, faith, he says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, it's not really a definition, but it's certainly an explanation of how faith works. Let's look at that word assurance he says, faith is assurance. What does, that, what does assurance mean? Well, it means firm, solid confidence. Assurance means calm courage. Imagining entering into the presence of a sovereign. Not being nervous that you'll be dismissed. Not being nervous that you'll have your head removed from your shoulders, but a calm, current, uh, a calm courage, an assurance that you're safe. And not in this situation based on anything that you've done, but an assurance based on the word of God. We could actually translate that first section there. Faith is an unyielding confidence in God's promises. It's the assurance of things hoped for. An unyielding confidence in God's promises. 
One translator, he rendered this opening line a little bit differently than what I just said. I think just turning the diamond is helpful here. He says, faith is living as if the things hoped for are real. Think about that. What is faith? Well, this is, isn't an exhaustive definition, but it surely is rhetorical. It helps us to understand what faith looks like. It's living as if the things hoped for are real. Do you truly have faith in what Jesus has accomplished? The author of Hebrews has worked hard to explain what Jesus has accomplished. And faith is living in light living as if those things are actually real. You think about the disciples. They witnessed the resurrection. They saw the risen Lord, shared a room, shared a meal, shared time with him. And they were all asked to deny that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. And yet they didn't. Why did they not? Why did they not turn? Why didn't they save their own lives as the sword was raised over their necks? As the sticks were lit at their feet? Why didn't they turn? Why didn't they call this a farce? Because they couldn't. They truly believed that Jesus had rose from the dead. They truly believed what Jesus proclaimed, that if they confessed their sins... They would be forgiven of their sins. The Apostle John says, where would we go? You have the words of life. They truly had faith. The, the disciples lived in light of this reality that had been proclaimed to them. Similarly, the, uh, the, uh, our father, Abraham, as we sing about, he lived his whole life on the belief that the heavenly homeland, spoken of in verses 13 down to 16, and of that permanent city, verse in verse 10, that those two things were actual realities. He lived his whole life that way. He was a peculiar dude, different than the rest, making decisions that changed the course of history and specifically his own history. He was a man of faith, and Moses was the same way. As we read in verse 26 of chapter 11, he was a man who lived for a greater reward. He truly believed that there was a greater reward. He lived in light. He lived as if it were true, and he demonstrated his faith. What about that word conviction? It's a little bit different, but it's a very, very similar word. The word for conviction used here, it means a belief that is not a stagnant complacency, but something active and working. A conviction is not just a principle that gathers dust. It is something that actually works. It's something that moves. It's dynamic. It's not just an assembly of fixed beliefs, a systematic theology that's been adopted. No, it's a vibrant certainty that compels someone to reach out and grasp what cannot actually be seen with your eyes. You're so certain it's there. You're convinced. You have a conviction. So again, you see, it's not much of a definition, but it does go on to explain to us how faith works. It changes the way that we live our lives. Based 
on the truth that has been given to us or the promises that God has revealed. That's verse 1. We understand a little bit more about faith. We'll continue to understand as we go through, but we understand a little bit about faith. But now let's look at how was faith used in the past? Well, that's what verse 2 is working to explain for us. For by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. I love that phrase, people of old. It, it's the same word as presbyteros, which means elders or the ancients in this situ- situation. The ancients, the old ones, the old men of history of old. That's what he's talking about here. For by the people of old, the ancients received their commendation. What does commendation mean? Well, it's actually the same word that we get martyr from, which means to witness. And the one giving a commendation in a death of a martyr is, well, the martyr. What's the martyr saying? Well, John Huss died singing the truths about God. He was burned alive at the stake. And he sang. And what was his statement? What was his commendation that he was making? He was saying that Jesus alone is the head of the church. No pope, no bishop, nothing but Jesus. He is our only mediator. He died giving that testimony, making that statement. He was a martyr. He gave a commendation. Well, in this situation, it's not martyr in the sense of one who dies at the stake. Not someone who gets their head lopped off or or burned alive. And yet it's still somebody saying a true thing about somebody else. What's wonderful about this word commendation is that it is God who is giving the commendation. Think about the statement, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's a commendation. It's God making a statement about one of his children. That's the commendation that we want to receive, and that's the commendation that is in mind here. What does a commendation look like? Well, you could think of Jesus there on the cross. Looks to the sinner there on his left. Or right, I've forgotten now. Maybe it doesn't even, maybe it doesn't even declare. But he looks to the thief and he says, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Well, he's given this man a commendation. He's testifying. He's witnessing. He's declaring, you will be in heaven with me. In Romans 4, we're reminded of Abraham's commendation. Where it says in verse 1, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, our ancient, according to the flesh? What did he get? What did he earn Through the works of the flesh. Well, the rhetorical question there is answered with a no. Nothing. He's received nothing. But look at verse 2. It says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham gained something. He gained a commendation, but not through his own flesh. Not through his own strength. Verse 3 goes on. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. He had faith in God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. goes on to say, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, we might ask the question, how does someone in the Old Testament, how does one of the ancients, how do one of the elders of old, how do they receive a, condemn, or a commendation? They receive it through faith. Faith in what? Faith in God's promise. I want to point something out to you that's just wildly helpful. And it really brings this passage to light. I want you to notice something. It's interesting that, that some of the people that are considering fit, forsaking their faith in Christ and going back to some form of Judaism, some of those people, they're thinking about abandoning Jesus. Right? They've come into the Christian faith, they've begun to understand it, and now they've kind of tasted and saw, and now they're saying, hey, I just don't know if this is for me. I don't know if uh, I should stay here. I think I might have better placed my confidence somewhere else. And so they go back to Judaism. They go back to the sacrifices that are being made on a regular basis for them. Not the one sacrifice that was made by Christ and then completed. They want to go back and fill up some lacking there. And maybe they even make some foolish statement like, well, you know, this, this belief is a new belief. This Christianity is new. I, I want to turn back to the faithful stuff, to the old stuff, to the stuff that the forefathers believed. Well, anticipating that very thing, the preacher said, you want to you go back to the forefathers? Do you, do you know what the forefathers actually believed? And that's what chapter 11 is all about. He's going back to say, you want to leave? Christianity to go back to Judaism? He's like, don't you realize that all of the forefathers that you celebrate, they all looked forward to Christianity. They all looked forward to the promises that were made by God, which are now fulfilled in Christ. He says, all your forefathers, they all believed this. They saw Jesus' day and they rejoiced. That's what the scriptures teach us. He says, the forefathers, the ancients, how did they receive their commendation? How did they receive their good word from God? Simply by placing their faith in God's promises. That's what they did. That's all they did. But now he turns to the present. He looks at the past and he says, this is how they received their commendation. This is how they received salvation. Believing, putting all their trust that God's promises would be true. And now he turns to the present and he says, by faith we... He's including himself again. He likes to do that. He likes to stand with his audience. He's, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that that which, was, that which is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here, here's the point that he's making. Faith allows us to understand the past and anticipate the future based on what God has told us. He's saying faith allows us to understand the past and to anticipate the future based on what God has told us. More specifically, faith is laying hold of what God said he did in the past and what he says he will do in the future. That's what faith is. Let me ask you this. And this is what he's getting at in verse 3. Where were you when God created the world? Where were you? It's a sort of a silly question, but it's really helpful. It gives us a baseline. Kind of puts all the things in order. We look around and we see this incredible world. We look in the mirror and we see an incredible creature. 
how in the world can we operate and our hearts beat and our minds fire off synapses? How can this be? How is this possible? Where did all this come from? What's the meaning of life? And God speaks into that and says, in the beginning, I created everything. And by the way, I created everything out of nothing. I didn't use building blocks. I created the building blocks by a word that I spoke and everything came into existence. You say, that's ridiculous. Well, you have a better option? God is speaking to us and he's saying, I've created all things. Where were you? I created these things. I made everything out of nothing. I spoke it into existence. I brought you into existence. And he's saying, I want you to place your faith. I want you to place your trust in what I'm saying happened. He's referencing Genesis 1. But he also is teaching us of John 1, which mirrors very similarly Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says that God spoke everything into existence. He created all things and he sustains them. It teaches us elsewhere. John 1 comes along and says, yes, in the beginning was the Word. And the, the Word was God and the Word was with God. It goes on a few verses later to say, and the Word became flesh. The eternal word of God that always existed before anything that was made was made. The word of God, which is Christ himself, existed. And it says Christ became flesh. Took on flesh. Dwelt among us. His name was Jesus. And it says there in John 1, as many as received him. As many as believed on his name, he gave the power to become the sons of God. These are two incredible truths that God declares to us, and we were not at either one of these events. We were not there hanging out, watching God create space. And then we didn't see him create matter to put into that space. We didn't watch it, and he's told us yet that he has accomplished it. Neither were we there in Bethlehem many years ago as the eternal Son of God made his debut into the creation that he had created. We weren't there. And yet the scriptures tell us that God created us, that we have fallen in our sin, we became rebels against him, and yet in his mercy, God the Father sent God the Son to die in our place and all those who would turn to him in humility for forgiveness of sins, submitting to him as Lord, would be welcomed in back into his kingdom. That's an incredible truth. That's an incredible reality. And that's exactly what Hebrews is telling us about there in chapter 1. Do you remember that? Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the whole world. He's underlining these two realities, that God created everything, spoke it into existence, sustains it now, and also provides a way for a wayward sinner to come back to him. When the missionary John Patton was translating the scriptures for the New Hebrides Islands, he was unable to find a word, at least I'm told, in their vocabulary for the concept of believing. And so he's racking his brain trying to figure out a word. How can, he, 
How can he translate the, the scriptures, God's word, into this particular language? And he has no idea how to do it. And there he is sitting there in his hut, second floor hut. And as he's writing, all of his papers are out. He's got his books out. One of the natives runs up the stairs, plops down in the chair and says this. It's so good, of course, speaking his own language. It's so good to stretch myself out and rest my whole weight in this chair. And John Patton at that moment realizes that's the word. Faith is resting your whole weight on God. And that word he actually used to translate the New Testament. And if you were to use that word and kind of translate it back into English, this is the way that John Patton translated it. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Stretch yourself out on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Or maybe John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever stretches himself out on him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God has given us his word for the purpose of assurance, for the purpose of conviction. God has made a promise to us. When we receive that promise and we rest wholly in it, when we stretch ourselves out in it as it were a chair to support us all, tired as we are, that is faith. You also may be helped this morning by the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks this question. It'll be on the screen for you. It asks, what is true faith? What is true faith? And the answer comes, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. Think about that. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. The main idea this morning is this, that those who have faith in the promises of God find salvation. Those who have faith in the promises of God find salvation. Very specifically, we've looked from chapter 4, to chapter 10 at the work of Jesus and God has promised that if you will rest yourself wholly on Jesus that you will find salvation that's a beautiful beautiful truth now we live in a fallen world this is a challenging topic for us we come to understand a little bit more about faith this morning. What does it do? What does it look like? And what's a helpful working definition of faith? It's easy to talk about faith. It's not as easy to walk by faith. The first recipients of this letter, they've been promised that Jesus was better and that he was going to return soon. Jesus is better than anything else you've ever experienced, and he will return soon. That was easy enough. Got it. I got it. I'm going to have my faith and these promises of God, and, and thereby I will receive salvation. Everything that God says is true. I'm resting entirely on that. But then the persecution came. And the persecution made it very difficult for them to remain confident, which means to be with faith. 
the discrimination increased, and the waiting is prolonged. They began to ask the question, would it truly be damning for us to return to, to Judaism? Would it, would it be damning for us to go back to the temple? Would that truly be a lack of faith? They had a lot of questions. And maybe we're a little bit confused as well. As I think about this topic of faith, I see that there's some confusion in our culture as well. Maybe not in the church, but certainly in the culture that we live in. Certainly with the friends and family members, the neighbors that we interact with. And so I want to give you this morning four facts about faith. Four facts about faith. And we'll move quickly through them, I promise. The first one is this. Faith is more than believing in God. Faith is more than believing in God. There's a huge difference between believing God exists and actually believing God. I, I regularly have conversations with folks, and I know that you do too. And when they find out I'm a Christian, they want to report to me, oh, I believe in God. And I celebrate that. That's wonderful. It's great to run into somebody that believes in God because God is. But the reality is they're only halfway there. All of us here have a grandmother. Now, she may not be living, but you still had a grandmother. And you likely believe that your grandmother either exists or existed. But you may not believe what your grandmother says. You might say, I believe my grandma exists, but that's quite different than saying, I believe everything that my grandmother espouses. These are two totally different things. How many of you are sitting at your grandma's house, or maybe it's, maybe it's your mom, and she said something like this, hey, sitting too close to the TV hurts your eyes. Back up, back up. You'll go blind. That's why your older brother's wearing glasses, something silly like that. Well, there's no peer-reviewed journals that say, medical journals that say that that's true. So I'm not trying to make problems between you and your grandma or your mom, but that is not true. There's no evidence of that. Here's another one. Cats suck the breath out of babies. Right? Did you ever hear that? Keep that cat away. It sucks the breath right out of the babies. Well, again, there's good explanations to what's actually taking place there, but the cat is not sucking the breath out of the baby. Or how about being cold gives you a cold? Being cold causes you to catch a cold. Some of you are like, mm. some of you grandmas are like, hey, wait, let me tell you something. The point is, we've all known somebody, we've all loved somebody, we've all believed somebody existed, had sweet fellowship with them even, but yet we didn't believe everything that they said. We didn't believe everything that they espoused. You don't believe, you don't have to believe everything your grandma says to believe that she exists. Again, these are two different things. And when it comes to God, we sometimes assume that believing that God exists is the same thing as believing God. I have faith. Friends, it is not the same thing. The scriptures tell us that we must believe that he is, which means he exists, which means he is the great I am. But in addition to that, there is something else, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We'll look at that in a few weeks. What does that mean? Well, it, it means not only do we have to believe that he exists, but that he has made us a promise. And that that promise is true. Some of you here this morning, you are satisfied 
with believing in God, and you leave it at that. But you haven't really considered what he says. You haven't actually considered what he has told you. Just so you know what camp that you're in, if that's where you're at, James chapter 2, verse 19 says this, you believe that God is one? Okay. You do well. That's good. It's true. But he says this, even the demons believe. The demons believe and, th and they shudder. They're afraid of God. You whisper the name of God and a demon shudders, it says. But that's not enough. That's not the faith that we read in the book of Hebrews. If I could just talk for a moment to the young people in this room. You know who you are. Some of you in your 30s, you're not a young person. But maybe it still applies to you. You've, you've always believed that God exists. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home and you say, well, yeah, of course I know that God is. This is his world. He's given me life. Maybe that's you. Maybe you could all go on to say, well, my parents have a great relationship with the Lord. They are here regularly at the church. They give to the church. They do this. They do that. Maybe they're even planning on going on the missions trip to India. That's fantastic. And yet, I would look at you and ask, do you have faith? Are you resting in the promises of God for you? If not, this sermon's for you. It's not enough just to believe that God is. He requires us to believe in his promises, to obey his commands. Believing that if we do not obey his commands, there will be judgment. And if we do submit, if we do believe, there is mercy. This is the promise of God. But maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, this is my first time being in a Christian church. And I've just realized that there's a difference between knowing that God exists and believing that and actually believing his promises for me are true. If that's here and you're saying, hey, I want to take the next step. <laughs> I want to move from just knowing he exists to submitting to the one who has made promises. If that's you, I, I want to talk to you today. That would, make, that would literally make my day. And in addition to that, an action step is to, to grab the Connect card in front of you. Take it out right now, if you will. Or take it out discreetly here in a few moments. But don't leave without doing it. Fill out that Connect card. Maybe you're saying, hey, I want to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. I, I would love to take time this week and share with you what that means. And maybe you're saying, hey, I want to take the next step and join the church. Or I want to take the next step and, and be discipled in my faith. Again, whether you're old or young, whether this is the first time you've heard this good news about Jesus or the 100th time, either way, I want to walk with you. And many other brothers and sisters want to do that same thing with you. We want to help you transition from this idea of just knowing that God is to actually knowing him personally and believing his promises for you. When it comes to faith, there are many confusions. One is to think that just believing God exists is what he requires of you. And another is to think that it's all we need is faith. That's all we need. We just need faith. And in one sense, that's true. But in another sense, it's not true. Point number two about faith is this. 
faith is only as good as its object. Faith is only as good as its object. Just as often as I hear somebody declare to me, no, 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 I, I believe in God, is just as often I hear people say, oh, oh, I have faith, I have faith. Well, it's a great follow-up question. What, what is your faith actually anchored in? Are you like that native that walks into John's study and plops down in the chair, placing all of his weight in that chair? Or are you placing that ch- or your weight in something partially here and partially there? Is your faith partially in God and partially in yourself and your own good works? Partially in your own good looks or your own abilities? The truth is that faith in something, anything other than God is worthless. The Bible challenges us to faith, but not just random hope. Well, I just hope things will turn out well. I have faith, and Christians have faith, therefore I'm a Christian. That's not true. Christians have placed all of their faith in Jesus' finished work. Let me ask you a question, not so serious, but very interesting. Did you know that Elvis... I just caught many of you. You just woke up. Did you know that Elvis made a cameo appearance in the hit movie of 1990, Home Alone? Did you know he was in it? Well, I don't know if he was really in it, but there are many people that believe the theory that Elvis is still alive and that he was actually in the 1990 movie, Home Alone. I've just lost some of you. I'll try to get you back. The theory is that Elvis potentially faked his own death. What was his motive? He wanted to escape the pressures of fame, and so he pretended to die. And now he's in hiding somewhere, and every once in a while, just to taunt his followers and fans, he'll show up in a movie or some other place, eating at some restaurant. Imagine if he were to come out of hiding, though. Imagine if, for a moment, Elvis decided, you know what, I'd like to be back on the throne I'd like to be the king of rock and roll again. All this pop nonsense. I need to show them how to move those hips. And he comes out and he says, I will, I'll show myself to be who I really am at the impersonator contest in Nashville. And so he gets his duds out. He shakes them off. He puts them on and he heads down to, to good old Tennessee. Well, I dare tell you that many people in that contest are going to give Elvis a run for his money. Imagine being a judge and trying to determine which is the real Elvis. Now, some we could easily weed out. And yet there are some that look very, very similar. They sound the same. They look the same. They move the same. It would be hard for us to determine which is the right Elvis. This morning we're being challenged to have faith in Jesus. The reality for us is there are many images of Jesus. There are many Jesus-y sort of messages that are out there. Which one are we speaking of? Some of you are still saying, I didn't realize there was any more than one. I thought there was just one. We have to make sure that our faith is in the right object. More specifically, our faith is in the right object. Jesus. Galatians chapter 1 warns us that those who place their faith and those who preach another gospel are accursed. Essentially, they are damned. It's a serious, serious warning. 
And since there are so many Jesus-y options out there, we need to be very careful to make sure that we know the right one. A little bit more fun here. I'll test your knowledge, your movie trivia knowledge. What's the most quoted line of all time in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? Something about being the fairest of them all. Somebody shout it out. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? That's actually not what's said in the movie. Did you know that? Some of you are going to have your mind blown. The actual quote is this. Magic mirror on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? Go back and look or watch. How about the most quoted line of Apollo 13? Some of you are less confident now. The most quoted line of Apollo 13. Houston, we have a problem. Incorrect. Bam, bam, bam. Actual quote. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Most misquoted. It doesn't make that much of a difference, and yet it's different. Some of you are like, hey, I'm not really down with uh, Apollo 13, and come on, Disney. Well, how about this new line of Disney, Star Wars? What's the most quoted line in all of Star Wars? One of us is ready. Most of you would probably have said, myself included, Luke, I am your father. And we would have done so incorrectly. It's, no, I am your father. Misquoting these famous movie lines have little to no consequence in our lives. Other than to question everything that we've ever believed. However, misquoting God has very, very serious consequences. Very, very serious consequences. Maybe not so serious and yet still a misquote from God is something like this. God saying, I'll never give you more than you can handle. Where does the scripture teach us that? The scripture never, never said that God would not give us more than we could handle. No, he actually says something like this. I want your, po- your, your burden to be so impossible that you'll have to run to me and take my yoke on you and your yoke will be on me. That's what he says. How about following Jesus is the safest place for you? In a sense, that's true, but the actual quote from Jesus is more like this. Hey, guys, I want you to know, they persecuted me. Uh, you're not any better than me. Sure, you're going to get persecuted too. It's going to happen. Everyone who lives godly, everyone who follows me is going to be persecuted. That's, that's just the way that it is. I want you to know. How about something like this? Well, justice will be served on earth. Well, that's, again, partially true, but really the, the promise is that justice will be served in the end. Not now, not today. No, the wicked will flourish today. People will think they've gotten away with their sins, and the scriptures tell us they won't get justice today, not in this lifetime, but at the end, judgment will come, and they'll get it then. What about this? We we believe this lie that when we become Christians, when we come to Jesus and we ask for forgiveness and he gives it to us, that we're instantly changed. Some of us believe that. And yet Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and the entirety of the New Testament would actually tell us, no, it's, it's a gradual change. And you need to keep relying on the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the people of God. And that change will happen, but it will be gradual. There's other ones. Maybe it's this lie that we are not called personally to evangelize. We've believed that lie, many of us, and so we haven't. 
We've not shared the good news that we have with others. And we say, well, that's not really my job. I'll just, I'll use the gospel, I'll, I'll preach the gospel through my life, and if necessary, I'll use words. That's ridiculous. It's always necessary to use words. The scriptures teach us that. Whether it be your neighbors or the nations, we need to evangelize and share the gospel. You see that it can be easily, even for us, we can so easily be confused as to which Jesus we're actually following and what Jesus actually said. He can be misquoted and we can misunderstand. That's one of the reasons why uh, in, in, in just a few weeks on May 7th, our kids are going to engage with a brand new curriculum called Our Great God. And over the course of the next year, we're going to be looking at the greatness of God that's most clearly seen in his attributes. Attributes that the scriptures teach us about God. Who better to learn, ab- how better to learn about God than to ask God's word what God is like. And so over the next 12 months, kids are going to be interacting with 32 different attributes of God. And we're going to discover what our great God is like and what our great Savior has accomplished for us. So be praying for our kids as they go through that. We don't want them to be misunderstanding, misquoting Jesus. What specifically, though, does this passage, what specifically does the author want us to know and not get wrong about Jesus? That he has opened the door for us to enter into the presence of God. The question I have for you now is, is it enough to declare that you have faith in Jesus? Can you just stand now and say, I declare that I have faith in Jesus? Well, in a sense, yes. That's what the scriptures and the author wants us to do. To with boldness declare that we have faith in what God has promised in Jesus. But in another sense, the scriptures teach us that our faith or statement of faith should not be alone. And that's number three. Of the four facts about faith, number three is this. Faith is never alone. Faith is never alone. What saves the Christian? The promise that God has offered salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we lay hold of that work, that finished work, through faith. And so faith alone saves us. The theologian J.I. Packer helps us there and says, what saves is faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Think about that. What saves is faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone brings the commendation, but faith is a way of life, not merely a theoretical belief system. The book of James says this, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food? And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also by itself, it, if it does not have works, faith is dead. He's saying, if you say, I love you, friend, and I don't want you to be suffering the way that you are, best of luck, and you go your way. He's asking the question, do you really love this person? You said you had love, and yet you, when you had opportunities, when you had resources, you didn't help. You didn't relieve their injuries. You didn't relieve their circumstances. Did you really have love for them? Well, the answer is no. Similarly, he's saying if you say you have faith, you stand and declare, I have faith. And yet there's never any works that go along with that. This apostle is saying it's likely that you don't really have true faith. It's likely that your faith is not real faith. How many faiths out there would teach us? How many different cults and false gospels would teach us that we can add to the work of God by earning something? Oh, there's, there's so many. There's, there's so many. Too many to count. Even this Saturday, folks coming to my door, wanting to tell me and my family about the other things that we need to do in order to earn God's favor and not just throwing ourselves and resting fully on the finished work of Jesus. We have to be careful here. There's two sides of the horse that we can fall off of. On one side of this horse of faith, we can fall off and we can say, faith is not enough. We have to do works in addition to that. It's Jesus' completed work plus tithing and communion and baptism and fellowship and membership and all this other stuff. And all of these things are good things, but if we think that they somehow add to what Jesus has completed, then we have fallen off the horse. And we don't have the true faith that the scriptures are encouraging us toward. And yet there's another side of the horse that we can fall off. The side that says, hey, I have faith in Jesus, but my life doesn't look like it at all. The side that says, hey, I believe that the house is on fire, and yet I'll sit here on the couch and declare that this is fine. It's not true faith. Neither of these are true faith. The promises of God are that if we confess our sins, if we run to Jesus, we will be accepted. If we rest entirely on Jesus, we will receive a commendation. And yet, we have these two pitfalls. Helping us to see what faith looks like. What it should look like in your life is the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 4 to 38. I just want you to look at it. It will be on the screen. We're going to move through them quickly. I want you to see that faith is never alone. You're going to see a, a, a sort of a makeup here and a, a list He's going to go through a bunch of people on this list, and he's going to introduce them by saying this, by faith, so-and-so did this thing, and here's the positive outcome. And so we're going to see introduction, by faith, somebody did something, and this good thing happened. So look first at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice. Now, the positive outcome we'll see, not today, next week. Look at verse 5, though. By faith, Enoch 
was commended as having pleased God. By faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has a foundation whose designer and builder is God. Look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah considered him faithful who had promised. What a great testimony. This woman, by faith, considered God faithful. His promises, true. 17, by faith, Abraham offered Isaac. 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. 21, by faith, Jacob blessed each of his sons. What, what were these folks doing? They, they were believing the promises of God to be true. 23, by faith, Moses was hidden for three months by his parents. And in verse 24, Moses refused to be called the son of of Pharaoh's daughter. 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. How could they have followed God through those parted waters? What a terrible, terrible, fearful circumstance they found themselves in. But they still obeyed God and they had faith that he would protect them. They walked through on, red, on, on dry ground through the Red Sea. We see the two sides of faith not pictured here. None of these people in the hall of faith have fallen off this one side and say, I need to add to this work. No, what's said of them is they had faith in God's promises. And their faith showed itself by the work that they did. They're not saved by works, they're saved by faith. The other side we do not see here either. They're declaring themselves to have faith and yet not obeying God. Not actually believing God. They're the, the children of Israel on the bank of the Red Sea. And God's saying, I will deliver you. I will bring you into the promised land. I'll save you from the enemy that's descending on you at this very moment. Now pass through the Red Sea. If they did not believe that God had promised to protect them, in that moment, they would not have walked through. Were they saved because they walked through? No. They were saved by God. Nobody looks at the Red Sea and says, man, that was incredible. Look how they saved themselves. By faith, they crossed the sea. By faith. I want to invite the musicians to come up. As they do, I want to remind you of what the preacher to the Hebrews wanted these folks in the audience originally to know and what we need to know this morning. We this morning need to place our faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. It's recounted in the song that we're about to sing, Marvelous Grace. You've heard this song, I'm sure. And if not, it's a wonderful, wonderful song. It says this, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson, a, crimson, a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. That's, that's the offer for you. That's the author from the book of Hebrews. Whiter than snow you can be today. And through which avenue? Passing through what door? Those who have faith in the promises of God find salvation. I pray this morning that your confidence, that your faith 
your conviction, your assurance in the completed work of God, the promises of God are increased, and that you'll continue to walk in faith. Let's pray to that end. Father, we celebrate this morning this work that you have done on our behalf. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, we celebrate that. You promised that even now that you'll hear our prayer. God, you promised that regardless of what we are guilty of, regardless of who is in this room right now, if we call out for mercy in the name of Jesus, we will be saved. God, would you save somebody right this very moment? Would they receive the marvelous grace of our loving Lord the first time today? God, we ask this in your name and for your glory alone. Amen. Church, I want to ask you to stand and respond to the sermon that's been preached, the truths that we've just read, and sing about the marvelous grace of our loving Lord.